Rick, why don't you lead us? No, I think when we sing about our hope in Christ and God's faithfulness to us, it reminds us that the reason we have to sing songs like that is because we live in a world that is filled with troubles. Would you agree with that this morning? And when you look around, you don't even have to be a Christian to feel this way. You can look around and you can look at the state of our world, whether it's now in 2023 or 23 BC. And the question that everyone is crying out and asking in their hearts is how on earth did we get here? How on earth did we get to a place where as human civilization, we're so good at starting wars and so bad at making peace? Why is it that it's so common for us to deal with disease and sickness in our families and in our own life? Why is it that all of us know at least one or two or even three people right now who have cancer? Why is it that probably everybody in this room has lost somebody far too soon to death? Speaking of death, why is it that sometimes the people who die are the people who you think shouldn't die? Teenagers who die in car wrecks, drug overdoses, babies who die before they're even born, men who die even while they're still trying to provide for their families. Let's be honest, I think if you and I were able to be exposed at one moment to all of the horrible things that were happening in our world, all of the terror, all of the evil, and all of the destruction, I think all of us would immediately be consumed by hopelessness because there's just so much of it. And the question everyone asks is, how did we get here? Well, as we talked about last week, the Bible has an answer to that question. Those who don't believe the Bible, they don't have an answer for that. But the Bible gives us an answer, and the answer is this, that we experience all of the things I talked about because of the curse of sin. As we talked about last week, and it's very clear in the scriptures that we'll read this morning, all of the pain and the suffering and the death that we all hate about this life is here because of the original sin in our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. Last week we saw that it's those curses, those different ways of suffering that are a product of the domino effect of sin. Now it's a good question to ask, how did we get here? But I think this morning there's a better question that we should ask. How do we escape the curse of sin? With so many things in our world that feel hopeless, the question that I think is deeper in our hearts is, how do we stop all of this bad stuff? 
Have you ever been in a place in life where you've been struck with tragedy and you look up to heaven and you wonder, God, when will you give me some hope in amidst this grief and loss? God, when is it that we can stop worrying about the next disease or the next problem or I have to, can stop worrying about my next doctor's appointment? God, when will I have to stop worrying about the danger of living in a sinful world as I send my kids out of the home and worry what might happen to them? God, when is it that I can stop worrying that at any moment I could drive on a road and a drunk driver could swerve into my lane and kill me? I think everybody wants that hope, don't we? All of us want some hope that can give us some reprieve when our loved one dies or when we stare death in the face ourselves. But the question this morning is, where do we find that hope? Where do we find hope that can deliver us from the terrible nature of death and sin? Our text this morning is gonna answer that question for us. That our hope that we are looking for would have been the very same hope Adam and his wife would have been looking for. Can you imagine last week being the people who are standing by as God uttered all of the consequences for their sin? Eve, what's gonna happen is because of your sin, you're gonna have suffering and childbearing, your marriage is gonna have strife, and Adam, your job is not gonna be as productive as it could have been, and there's gonna be this ongoing war between evil and good, and no doubt Adam and Eve are standing there and be like, what hope do we have? But I want you to see in Genesis 3 that God doesn't just utter a word of despair and curse and consequences. That in our message this morning, I want you to see this main truth. That the curse of sin can only be removed by the promised Christ. All of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the evil that we want to be delivered from, we can only find that hope in one person and his name is Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, he shows up in Genesis chapter three, in verses 15 and 21. What I think you'll be encouraged by this morning is that this promise of Christ is not vague. It's not an empty hope. So often when people are dealing with suffering and grief and pain, all we have is empty words of hope. It'll get better soon. Oh, this is just a season. Friend, those words are empty. They're vague, and frankly, sometimes they're not true. This is just a season. It may not be a season. We don't have hope in things like that. But as you'll see this morning, that the hope of the promised Christ is not vague. It's specific. It's not out in the distance. We can look to the past and see how this hope has been fulfilled, and we can look to the future and see how it'll be fulfilled evermore. It is not an empty hope. It is the realest hope you can ever place your faith in, and that is the hope of what Christ does to deliver us from the curse of sin. I want us to read the same passage we read yesterday, last week. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. And as we read, I want you to pay special attention to verses 15 and verse 21. 
because we will see two promises about this Christ who is promised to us. In Genesis 3, let's look at Genesis 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And out of nowhere, verse 20 shows up, which seems really out of line. It doesn't make sense why it's here. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And here's verse 21. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. There's two promises in our passage this morning about the promised Christ. And here's the first one. God has promised that Christ will defeat Satan and sin once and for all. And what a great promise this is. What's sad about Genesis 3 is that if you're not reading it carefully, it, it feels like Satan is the winner, right? Satan shows up in verses one through seven. He tempts Adam and Eve to take of the fruit and he wins. They take of the fruit. And then on top of that, not only did they die as God promised they would, but there's a whole list of consequences that are brought upon them because of their sin. And it just seems like Satan's really winning this one. Yeah, Satan has his own consequences, but their life is totally turned upside down. Eve would bring forth children, but she would bring them forth in sorrow. It wouldn't be as easy as it would have been prior to the fall and their marriage is messed up. And we already see that in verse seven and eight, they're hiding from each other and then they're blaming each other. That's the result of sin. It affects our marriages. And then Satan gets the upper hand because now Adam's life is even harder than it was before. He worked before, but now his work would be even harder. It would come with difficulty, thorns and thistles and sweat. Seems like Satan is the winner of this story. But God has promised 
something even more. In verse number 15, he says something that really sounds kind of tragic. He says, it's not just this one-time incident that Eve and the serpent will have in this, this conflict that they'll have. He makes it very clear in Genesis 3.15 that there will be an ongoing hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Look at Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity or hostility between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So there's going to be this ongoing war, and it wouldn't just be between this serpent and this woman, but their descendants would be at war with one another. Well, that's kind of a bummer. You would think that because of the curse in verse number 14, Eve would be done with the serpent. But God says, no, this war is going to continue on. But then there's a, there's a little bit of a phrase there at the end of verse 15 that laces this with hope. Because God says, though there will be a war between the serpent and the woman... The serpent will not ultimately win that war. He says the serpent will be able to wound you and hurt you, but the final blow of victory will not be dealt by the serpent. It will be given by the descendant of Eve. Look at verse 15 again. He says, it shall bruise thy head, talking to the serpent, and thou shalt bruise his head heal. That word bruise is a word that kind of changes its meaning based on what it's talking about. When it's talking about heal, it's a wound. But you could almost say that God was saying that at one point, the descendant of Eve would crush the head of Satan. That's what God is promising here, that yes, Satan would wound a descendant of Eve, but finally one day would come when he would be finally defeated and he pictures the descendant of Eve like some of us might want to do with the snakes we find in our yard, crushing his head, delivering a mortal blow that will defeat him once and for all. The question is, who on earth is this person going to be that's going to crush the head of the serpent? I don't know about you, if I was Eve, I'd really want to know that. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, that in some of the Old Testament books, there seems to be this weird obsession with genealogies. You ever read those chapters in your Bible range? Probably the time when you stopped reading your Bible all the way through, right? So, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and he lived and he died, and he was this many years old. And then so-and-so begot so-and-so, and he lived and he died, and this, he was this many years old. I never understood what all that was about. Until I started understanding what Genesis 3.15 is about. Because the reason all those genealogies are there is they're trying to trace for us who is coming from Eve and who would be the promised person who would have victory over the seed of the serpent. And as we read through the book of Genesis, you'll see at the end of chapter 4 and chapter number 5, there's a genealogy. And then you're going to read in chapter number 10, and there's another genealogy. And then all throughout, before the stories come of all the famous people in Genesis, there's going to be genealogy, list of names after list of names, because what Genesis is trying to do is it's trying to answer the question, who is this person that will have victory over the serpent? And we seem to get the sense that Adam and Eve were very hopeful each time they had children. Look at chapter number four in verse number one. As Eve gives birth to Cain, she celebrates, I have gotten a man from the Lord. That's not just her celebrating because she has a man instead of a a, a female child. She's thinking, this is it. 
Now look at chapter 4 and verse number 25. We see this hope again. Adam knew his wife again and bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said he hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. And then you look in Genesis chapter number 5 and verse 29 and Noah is born and here the descendants of Adam are still looking for this person who would roll back the curse, who would reverse the curse of sin. And remember the curse of sin included difficulty with the ground. Now look at chapter 5 verse number 29. We'll get there here in a couple weeks as well. And it says that he called his name Noah saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's genealogy after genealogy trying to figure out who is this promised seed. Is it Abel? Nope, he died. Is it Seth? Nope, he died too. Is it Noah? Well, their hopes are really getting up because he delivers the world through the flood and then he sins and he dies. Nope, not him. Abraham, nope, not him. Isaac, nope. Jacob, Joseph, and on down the line, David, Solomon. And all throughout the Old Testament, where's where's this descendant at? But there's one last genealogy in the Bible and it's in Luke chapter number three. Look at the screen, it's in verse 23. It traces the lineage of Jesus. And notice how Luke, writing, the whole point of this genealogy is to trace Jesus, the son of Joseph, back to Adam and Eve. It says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And then at the end of that section, verse 28, says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Who is this promised seed? It's not Noah or Abraham, the one that God had promised would defeat the serpent, the seed of Eve would be none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he would deliver a mortal blow on the cross and through his resurrection, which we'll talk about, was the moment that Christ defeated sin and death. But then we fast forward to the very end of the story in Revelation 20, and it shows us that Christ, who's metaphorically spoken of as an angel, delivers that final blow to Satan and ends his power once and for all. John describes it in Revelation 20 when he says, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on the dragon and notice how he identifies in Genesis 3, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years. Continue on in verse number 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into a lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and he shall be tormented day and night forever. Friend, the day will come. Christ will have his final victory over the seed of the serpent. He will defeat not only Satan, but he will defeat sin itself once and for all. Now, why does it matter to you as somebody in 2023 who this promised seed is. I think there's some practical ways we can apply ourselves to this text. 
that if we understand that Christ is the one who will defeat the serpent, it should motivate us to be on the right side of history. Because even Genesis itself subtly divides all of humanity into two teams. This team serpent and team serpent crusher. What you find out is that in Genesis, the seed of the serpent is not just some snake. That Moses sees the seed of the serpent as all of those who align themselves against God. Cain would be seen as the seed of the serpent trying to kill the seed of the woman, Abel. And then we're going to see all these other adversarial relationships in Genesis. We're going to see Jacob and his brother, who does not love the Lord like his brother, Esau. Esau, team serpent. Jacob, team serpent crusher. And I'll be honest, it's real tempting sometimes to be on team serpent. Because as Genesis 4 will show us, team serpent seems to have all of the the benefits of the here and now. They're the ones who benefit from the culture. They're the ones who are the inventors and, and the people who advance culture and seem to prosper in this lifetime. And team serpent crusher, as Genesis 5 says, well, they walked with God. So in the here and now, it doesn't really seem like much of a benefit to be on Team Serpent Crusher. But my friend, when you understand that the day will come when Team Serpent will be finally and fully defeated, it ought to motivate you to make sure you're on the right team. It also should motivate you to live for eternity and not the present. Why is it that the Bible always tells us to seek those things which are above? to live for the kingdom of heaven, to set our affection on things above. Because the day will come when we will be judged by how much we lived for the serpent crusher in this life. And as it turns out, the serpent crusher has wildly different values than team serpent. Team serpent values being rich. Team Serpent Crusher values being poor in spirit. Team Serpent values being proud and in control, but Team Serpent Crusher values being meek. Team Serpent seeks comfort. Team Serpent Crusher has promised persecution. And my friend, every day you make a decision with your daily choices, whether you will live for Team Serpent or Team Serpent Crusher. Whether you will set your affection on things above and give towards the kingdom of God and give towards those things where moss and rust don't corrupt or whether you'll invest your life in earthly treasures that will someday pass away. And, and the Bible's very clear in Revelation that on that day when the serpent crusher comes, his judgment on the serpent is preceded by his judgment of his people that the day will come where it won't just be Satan standing before the Lord Jesus, you will. And all the things you think God is ignoring in your life now will all come to light on that day. And there will be a reckoning. In the same way that some people try to hide stuff in their books, Brother Jerry, then the day comes that the auditor shows up. And all the books will be open. And you'll give an account for every transaction, whether it was given in the name of Team Serpent Crusher or in the honor of Team Serpent. There's another way 
we could apply this text to our life, that we recognize this, it should motivate us to live free from sin. Because the Bible's clear that, that it wasn't, it's not just in the future where the, where the serpent is thrown in the bottomless pit and he's tormented day and night. That's not the only time the serpent was defeated. That Romans 6 is very clear that sin and death itself were not, are not defeated in the future. They were defeated in the past at the resurrection of Christ. Paul says this in Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is free from sin. The question we ought to ask ourselves this morning is if Christ has crushed the serpent, why do we continue to sin as if we are enslaved to the serpent? Why do we live lives that reflect Adam and Eve's defeat rather than reflecting the victory of Jesus Christ? God calls us to recognize we don't have to sin and then to make a choice of who our master will be, team serpent or team serpent crusher. My friend, there's not a single sin in your life if you've joined Team Serpent Crusher by believing in the power and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is not one sin in your life God is okay with. There's not one sin in your life God says, well, we'll just hang on to that one till eternity. Every sin in your life God wants to crush in the same way he will crush the serpent at that day. But what's beautiful about this passage is it doesn't just show us that Christ will defeat our enemy. What it shows us is that Christ will reverse the effects of sin. That all the things God just laid out as the consequence of sin, he's giving us a hint in Genesis 3 that he's gonna roll all of those back one day through Jesus Christ. That's the second promise. God has promised Christ will reverse the effects of sin. Now, before we get to verse 21, I want you to kind of think at a higher level view. What were the main effects of sin? Verse number eight in chapter three shows us that shame was the result of sin, right? They were naked and ashamed. And then verse um, number 19 shows us that death was the result of sin. And really all the other curses are like a slow boiling death, right? The sorrow of childbearing is just a version of death. The pain and toil of the ground, it's just another variety of death. Separation from God is just another variety of death. And so here are the two main effects, shame and death. That's the effects of sin. But what's strange to me is in all of this chapter, as God is talking about the consequences of sin, in verse number 20, Moses just talks about Adam naming his wife. What's up with that? It seems kind of out of sync, doesn't it? Right? We, we read about the curse of sin, shame, and death, and then all of a sudden it makes a comment in chapter 3, verse 20, that Adam named his wife Eve. Now maybe it hasn't dawned on you, but up until this point she didn't have a name. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because as men, we're fabulously good at procrastinating things that need to get done. I don't know. I think what it is though, notice why he called her Eve. Look at verse 20. He called her Eve because she was the mother of all what? Come on, church family. You got the same Bible I do. Let's look at verse 20. Because she was the mother of all living. 
Does that stand out? What was the consequence of sin? Shame and death. But in the midst of the consequence of death, Adam calls his wife the mother of all living. Why was Adam calling her that? The act of Adam naming his wife Eve was an act of faith. It was in essence, Adam was saying this, God, I believe that you will provide life to us through the seed of this woman, Eve. I believe that the death we deserve will be reversed by the life that will come through the seed of this woman. And right here in one of the first chapters of the Bible, we have man responding by faith to God. And then the very next verse is God responding to man's faith by reversing the effects of sin. We know that they had shame because of their sin and they tried to solve their shame by making clothes out of fig leaves. Well, don't put your imagination to work too much, but it's not a very good covering, right? But God, in his grace, in response to Adam's faith, gives him a better covering, better clothes, a better reversal of shame. In verse 21, what does it say? It seems out of sync as well, but the idea here is that God is taking away the shame. He made coats of skins and clothed him. Now, there's two very important meanings to this. Well, number one, the skins were a way of covering the shame of their sin, It was a better way of dealing with their shame than the way they tried to deal with their shame. So God, in essence, by his grace, in response to Adam's faith, is taking away the shame of sin. But how do you make garments of skin? Well, not to be too grotesque, but you can't take an animal's skin without killing it. Now remember, what had God promised his created beings? That the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree, they would surely die. But on the day of their sin, it was not Adam and Eve who died. The death that they deserved was applied to that animal. And that animal became a sacrifice that covered their shame. In other words, God responded to Adam's faith by bringing the death he deserved on something else and taking away the shame of his sin. My friend, surely by now you see in this a picture of Christ. That the same way through Christ, God forgives us of our sins and takes away our shame. Can you imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve to receive those new clothes? how much better it would have felt? I mean, God's talking to them this is a whole, in this whole passage and they're just standing there in shame, caught in the act and feeling really awkward, right? They're embarrassed, they're hiding from God, they're scared to approach him. But the moment that God clothes them by his grace with this, this new clothing, no longer are they scared to be in each other's presence or in God's presence. No longer are they thinking about the shame of their sin. Now they can focus entirely on God himself. And as they looked at the body of that bloody animal, they recognized 
that the death they deserve was carried out on somebody else that day. And it was 2,000 years ago, God offered a better sacrifice than he did in Genesis 3. That his perfect son, the new Adam, lived with no sin. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he succeeded. He lived perfectly clean. He lived perfectly bringing glory to God. But because of your sins and the shame that is on your life, God sacrificed his own son. And it's through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, that God removes the penalty of sin that we deserved. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we don't have to withdraw from God. We don't have to fear him. In fact, the Bible says we can boldly come before his throne. We don't have to approach God in our shame. We can come to him with confidence that he loves and accepts us, not because of our own righteousness, but because the Bible says literally we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That when you stand in God's presence in much the same way, you are clothed with clothing that you didn't earn. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, you can pray to him as your father, as your father. And you can come before his presence with singing and gladness, not because you're ashamed of your sin, but because you're so thankful for his grace. But the Bible's so clear that not only did Jesus roll back the effect of our sin and shame, but the Bible is clear that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, rolled back the penalty of death. That Jesus died and rose again as the first fruits of the resurrection you and I will one day have. That because of the promised Christ, friend, you can be assured that when you die, you are not stepping into an abyss of death. You are stepping into a new life that is a greater life than you've ever had. You're only half living right now. But as a follower of Jesus, the day you will die, you will live like you've never lived before. And all of that is because Christ, as Paul says, made himself to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Friend, this morning, if you have not called out to Christ in faith, I would encourage you like Adam to trust in Christ's promise of life. To place your faith in the perfect sacrifice of his son. Because listen, if you choose not to respond in faith, your future will not be marked by hope and life and the reversal of sin. Your future will be marked by the heaviest curse and penalty that sin can bear down on you. Rather than eternal life, you, my friend, without Christ, will face eternal death. And as Paul says, we'll be of all men most miserable. I love, there's a song that maybe one day we'll learn as a church. But the first line of the song is this. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. If you're feeling shame for your sin this morning, Friend, running away from God, staying out of church, staying away from your Bible, staying away from prayer will not ultimately fix it. The only thing that'll fix the shame of your sin 
is by once again recognizing that your shame was put on Christ and that his righteousness and his freedom is applied to you by faith. And as we've talked about this morning, Christ's new life shows and it proves that there is not a single sin in your life that has to remain. That Christ is already victorious and he plans to demonstrate his victory in this world through the saints that he's left here and their lives of righteousness that reflect his glory. That's our motivation for sin, for, for conquering sin. Is that as we conquer sin, we are but a small picture of Christ's final victory over sin. So friend, don't tolerate bitterness. Don't tolerate anger, greed, pride, lust, selfishness. Because Christ has called you to live out the victory that this passage promises. If you're on team serpent crusher, start living like it. Because the day will come that the serpent crusher will not only crush the head of his enemy, but he will judge the lives of his saints. And we must live with an understanding of our future judgment. Every head bowed and every eye closed.